We know that we've had Chinese police stations operating within Canada. It took forever for the government to act on them and to even go shut them down. And meanwhile, when we look over to the U.S., they're looking at prosecuting people who are setting up these police stations. So why aren't we doing that in Canada? We absolutely should be. It's concerning that our national sovereignty is something that is just not seen with seriousness at all under this prime minister. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, you know, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, in in the world, especially in Canada, to access reliable sources of news. We live in a world where, you know, President Trump was famously removed from Twitter. Uh, recently, Dr. Jordan Peterson had an episode of his of his podcast, uh, you know, taken down from YouTube because uh, it had certain LGBTQ content that was unacceptable. And most recently, uh, the premier of our province, who represents about four and a half million people, uh, she was uh, she was restricted from posting anything on Facebook. Well, one of the reliable sources of truth in news uh, in this country is True North. And uh, we had the pleasure uh, last year of having Andrew Lawton, one of the reporters on our show, to talk about his book and his outstanding podcast. And today we have the pleasure of meeting uh, uh, someone else from True North. And uh, her name is uh, Rachel Emmanuel. She's the Edmonton correspondent for True North. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, uh, so uh, what we what we do on our show, Rachel, is we have uh, a few quotations to frame our discussion, and then uh, I'm going to get going. We're going to talk some politics today, which is one of our favorite uh, things to talk about on this show. Um, these have been uh, these quotations are selected somewhat in your in your honor because of who and what you report on. The first one is from our uh, our, our prime minister, who is becoming increasingly notorious by the day, as you know. Uh, he was quoted as saying this. I think this this quotation is somewhat ironic. He said, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone that I stand firmly against the politics of division, the politics of fear, the politics of intolerance or hateful rhetoric. If we allow politicians to succeed by scaring people, we don't actually end up any safer. Fear doesn't make us safer. It makes us weaker. Uh, the second one is from his uh, main opponent and critic nowadays, Pierre Polivier, who uh, said that any politician promising not to raise taxes is like a vampire promising to become a vegetarian. And finally, from someone a bit older than those two, Voltaire, who once uh, posed this question, is politics nothing other than the art of deliberately lying? Well, who do we have on the show today? Well, Rachel Emanuel, she is a seasoned political reporter who has covered government institutions from a variety of levels. She's a Carleton University journalism graduate. Uh, she was a multimedia reporter for three local Niagara newspapers, and her work has been published in the Toronto Star. Uh, Rachel was the inaugural recipient of the Political Matters Internship, placing her at the Global Mail's Parliamentary Bureau. And uh, she spent three years covering the federal government for iPolitics, and most recently, she is a correspondent for True North, based in Edmonton. So Rachel, uh, right off the bat, just to maybe get get to know you a little bit better, what what uh, what sparked your interest or inspired you to become a journalist? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It actually started when I was in high school. I've always been very interested in writing, even when I was in elementary school. I struggled a lot in some subjects like math and science, but really shone in more English and literature-based courses. So I always knew I was going to do something in writing. And when I was in grade 12, I found that I had a big interest in politics suddenly. And I was writing a lot about politics. At that time, everyone had to decide how they were going to spend the rest of their life. Very anxious time being 18 and deciding what the next steps are. So I decided I wanted to pursue a journalism degree, specifically in political journalism, which sort of obviously led me up to Ottawa, the capital. I thought that would be a perfect place to blend both of my interests, and certainly it proved to be so. I want to talk to you about uh, some of your recent uh, publications, which I think are very important uh, to Albertans and, and to the Alberta political scene. But before I go there, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the announcement, the recent announcement about these huge layoffs at CTV, because it sort of hits in, right in the, at the core of what's going on with, you know, uh, you know, companies like 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 True North and Rebel and others who are sort of carving out an, an ever growing space in the in, the, in, in public media. And are are really starting to make inroads against this sort of uh, blob of of publicly funded media that uh, we found out during COVID and subsequently have been feeding us a lot of a lot of rot. So, what's your take on those uh, on those uh, CTV layoffs? Was there were there sort of uh, cheers and hoo hoo uh, down at True North about that, or what, what's your take on that? I wasn't surprised to see the CTV news layoffs. I was maybe surprised to see a couple bigger names included in those. That, of course, is Joyce Napier and Glenn McGregor. I actually worked with both of them up in Ottawa. Joyce is one of the loveliest people I've ever met. She was so welcoming to me, even when I first started on the Hill. I did feel quite sad to see her name on there. Glenn was very respectful to me when I worked in mainstream media. We don't really talk anymore since I joined independent media, but I was surprised to see their names included. I'm personally probably not going to cheer the specifics of individual people losing their jobs, although I do think in this case is some of the bigger names, they'll end up on their feet, they'll get a job, probably making a lot more money, doing something a lot easier after all those years in journalism and having built up big names for themselves within the Canadian political ecosystem. That being said, ultimately, I think this is the direction that things are headed in. We're going to continue to see these layoffs in mainstream media, and I think it's really interesting that this is happening Despite all the government subsidies and all the federal money they're receiving, they still can't manage to keep themselves afloat. So clearly Canadians aren't really interested in this content. They don't want to pay for it. We know Canadians are less and less tuning into mainstream media outlets. And I think this is the direction that things are going to continue in. And I think that it's necessary. I don't believe that the government should be subsidizing media. And I think that as we see these subsidies dissipate, hopefully eventually we have a conservative government that removes them entirely. We're going to see who's left standing at the end of the day. And I think it will create a level playing field for all media in the system. It's it's kind of an unsustainable model, isn't it? It's turning out to be that, this idea that you can have a publicly funded media that just just puts out, uh, you know, government messaging and doesn't really create stories and content that people are interested in, or more importantly, that they trust. I, I, I personally would be quite in support of a law that would prohibit government sponsorship of mass media. Would you would you agree with that or do you think that's going too far? 
No, I would absolutely agree with that. I have no issue with that whatsoever. I do not agree with the government subsidizing media. You know, media is so critical of every single industry. We cover industries. We write about what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right, and if they're sexist within the industries and all these things. And yet they haven't figured out a way to keep themselves afloat. So it is really interesting. It seems a bit hypocritical. You know, we're constantly criticizing and judging all these other sectors, but aren't very reflective when it comes to our own sector. And obviously it can be done. Because when we look at independent media, well, we're all surviving without a dime of government money. So you should be able to do it too, or you should maybe pack up and go do something else. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the pieces that you've published. There's one that you published uh, in June uh, about asking, will there be a public inquiry? And this is in the context of, of course, David Johnston finally at long last, almost exhaustingly <laughs> resigning as the uh, tr- as the Trudeau government's controversial special rapporteur. Can you describe for us what's important about that? Why should his resignation uh, be important to to Canadians? So David Johnson's resignation is important. It should have come weeks before it did. He was never seen as somebody who was able to do the job independently. And as a nonpartisan, we know that he has a history of a relationship with the Trudeau family. The ski buddy or something, right? Yes, him and Justin (laughs) Trudeau had actually gone skiing together. So immediately upon his appointment, there was questions of whether he would be able to do the job independently. And he was never really able to escape those questions and those doubts. Then we know he produced a report and he did not recommend a public inquiry, even when the three opposition parties within government had on three occasions voted to proceed with an inquiry. So it didn't seem like he was going to step down. He kept defending his name. He kept defending himself and saying that he was not partisan and that he was able to do this job. I think it took him a little bit too long to realize that the story had become completely about him. The story was, of course, about election interference and whether this is something that we needed to investigate and be concerned about. But we just started talking about David Johnston all the time. So eventually, I think he realized that he had become the story, that Canadians didn't trust him, that the opposition parties didn't trust him. And so he did make the right decision to step down. And it looks like we are going to proceed with that independent inquiry that we know the opposition parties have been calling for now. This is sort of a, a familiar pattern with our prime minister, isn't it? Where uh, he he seems to to bring somebody or or cause somebody to come in to solve a problem, whether it's one of his cabinet ministers or a special rapporteur or someone else, and uh, they seem to to give him shade and uh, in this case take a bullet uh, for him, and and he walks off scot free. And we seem to be having the same thing unfolding right now with uh, Minister Mendocino in Ottawa. Uh, they're calling for his head. Uh, why do you think this is such a familiar pattern with uh, with our with our much maligned prime minister? To be fair, I think this is a very common thing in politics. Often when there's a screw up in government, they quickly look for somebody else to take the bullet so that the leader doesn't have to take the bullet, you know, protect the leader and their image at all costs. And if you can have someone resign and sort of put the blame on that person, we saw that a little bit with Gerald Butts during the SNC-Lavalin scandal. You know, he resigned and was sort of shift the controversy and the blame for that was shifted onto him and the prime minister was able to skip off. So it is something that we see a lot in politics. I think what we're noticing with the Trudeau government right now is just a heightened number of scandals. It seems like scandal after scandal after scandal. But I would say something that's interesting and unique to this government is in recent days, it just seems like there can be scandals and and nobody resigns. You know, we've had a couple instances where liberal cabinet ministers have been found guilty of awarding a contract to someone they were friends with. 
or maybe even someone who was part of their family. We had that recently with Mary Ng. She had awarded a contract to a company where one of her friends worked Mm -hmm. and she never resigned. This is just something that we wouldn't have seen 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you understood this was something to be ashamed of. And now you had to see yourself out the door for the sake of the government and because you were no longer a credible politician. But that standard has really changed under the prime minister. And I think that it's a bad thing for Canadian politics. I think it's a bad thing for democracy as a whole that we have removed those standards of what you need to do and what you need to be in order to be somebody who is an elected office. The... Uh... This concept of a public inquiry is really crucial because um, it will it will carry with it the force of law, and the recommendations um, could very well include uh, prosecution of certain people based on their decision making, their faulty decision making. Do you think that's part of the resistance to the public inquiry, at least within the Liberal caucus? You know what? It very well could be because we know that Trudeau is so soft on China in ways that are just really baffling and concerning. For example, we know that we've had Chinese police stations operating within Canada. It took forever for the government to act on them and to even go shut them down. And meanwhile, when we look over to the U.S., they're looking at prosecuting people who are setting up these police stations. So why aren't we doing that in Canada? We absolutely should be. It's concerning that our national sovereignty is something that is just not seen with seriousness at all under this prime minister. Right. Turning back to the Alberta scene, which is your your main role, what you cover, um, you wrote a piece uh, earlier in, in June about, uh, about Premier Smith announcing an arson investigation. And there's a lot of controversy in the country and actually in the United States too now because of all the smoke uh, they're getting about these fires. And uh, in fact, there are confirmed reports that a lot of these fires are being deliberately set. Uh, What is your your take on that? And why is it important uh, in your mind that that the Premier of Alberta has announced that she's actually going to conduct an investigation into who's starting these fires? Yeah, this is one of those really interesting stories where you see people kind of dig their heels and depending on what side they fall on, you know, one side is saying, oh, these fires are all the cause of climate change. And for anyone to say otherwise shows that they are a science denier. And on the other side, we have people who are saying, no, there's something amiss here. The fire started too early. This isn't our usual fire season. And there were so many of them. And so this is something really to look into. I think it's a good thing that the premier announced that they're going to be having these arson investigations. I know that she's planning on bringing in people from out of the province. I'm a little bit curious about what that means. Does it just mean we don't have adequate arson investigators within the province? She's bringing in the heavy hitters. I'm not sure. I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask her at the first opportunity, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with investigating these incidences. And as you mentioned, we have heard reports of suspected arson. We know that even one of the counties where there were so many fires ongoing said that a lot of fires were being started. So I think it's important that this is being looked into. And I'm really excited and curious to find out the results of what's happened here, because it just was an unusual fire season. This was only my second summer in Alberta, but obviously I talked to a lot of people and people were very concerned about what was going on and why there were so many fires so much earlier that the time when the fire started was actually usually when the province would be undergoing fire training for firefighters because it was seen as a pretty safe time to maybe light some fires and not have to worry about them, you know, taking off. And obviously that wasn't the case this year in May. So I am curious to see what the investigation will bring, but I don't have a ton of further thoughts on it at this point. There's a, there's a great uh, Michael Crichton novel you might've read called state of fear is written in the late nineties. And the, 
the theme of the book, the plot of the book is that uh, there are there are climate zealots who are setting off volcanoes and explosions and all kinds of things in order to to frighten people into believing in you know that that this climate change is is a serious existential existential crisis is sort of along the lines of an Al Gore uh, documentary uh there are people who are saying that now they're alleging that now that that it, it may be that given what uh, Mr Singh and Mr Trudeau are saying publicly indeed in parliament that uh that you know climate change is is the is the new covid and we we're going to have to you know, lock everybody down to save us from the sun monster. In that context, some people are even suggesting that these fires are being deliberately set in order to to sort of fuel, pardon the pun, climate change hysteria. Uh, do you think that's that's uh, orbiting orbiting a false planet? Uh, that that sort of uh, uh, you know fake news, or what's your take on that? I think the fact that we're having this conversation and I'm seeing those comments online just speaks to how betrayed people feel by their government and how hurt they feel after those years of COVID. Of course, we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, people began saying the next thing that we're going to see is climate lockdowns. We're going to see the government lock us in our homes so that we reduce our emissions. And, you know, we have seen a liberal government that is so focused on their climate agenda. Canadians are really suffering right now. There's a crazy cost of living crisis ongoing. People don't know where to live. There's housing crisis across the nation. We're just out of houses altogether. Healthcare is a bit of a disaster. All across the board, you know, crime is just through the roof. And so there's so many issues ongoing in Canadian society right now. And it seems like the only thing the Liberal government really cares about is their own climate agenda. And I think the fact that we're hearing those comments from people speaks to how traumatized Canadians are following two and a half years of government lockdowns throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's concerning that we've reached a point where Canadians have so lost trust in their government institutions. And I think it also you know, speaks to the need for a change in government. Unfortunately, we've sort of talked about some of the recent scandals plaguing the Liberal government. But we know that the NDP are just determined to prop them up right now. And so unfortunately, even while I think recent polls showed something like 80% of Canadians would like to see a change in government, that's not going to happen until the NDP sort of, you know, grow a pair and decides to stop propping up the civil government and, and let us have an election. Right. There's, uh, there's certainly been some doubling down by this federal government on their climate agenda. As you've said, uh, we have another climate tax coming in. Uh, uh, in July and and also uh, recently, uh, they've said that that they're going to go ahead and actually table a bill on what has become known as just in transition, uh, which Albertans regard as unjust transition. But the Premier of Alberta has stood up to this, and she's even uh, in a recent radio interview. I heard her say that uh, she's not talking about uh, separating, but she's talking about Alberta sovereignty and independence, and that. Uh, that 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 she's not going to stand for this. She's very serious about protecting Alberta from this sort of federal overreach and imposition of uh, this climate agenda to interfere with Alberta's energy industry. And she's recently uh, reached an agreement with uh, with Saskatchewan and Manitoba to open up this Hudson Bay corridor. Do you see these as as promising signs that maybe uh, we can we could escape or at least temporarily avoid? Uh, this 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 you know federal government encroachment and enforcement of their climate agenda. 
So something that I've learned about being in Alberta is that Albertans love to talk about separation. And it's certainly something that's very keen for a lot of the conservative Albertans that I know. I think it is a really interesting conversation, but a number of things need to happen before it's on the table in a serious and tangible way. One of those things being this port, of course, Alberta needs access to Tidewater to be able to ship their oils. And that's something that I know Premier Smith has been working on. I thought it was interesting earlier in the year when the Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson said she wasn't really interested in it. Seems like they've made some progress on that file since then. And I think it is very promising. This is something that Alberta needs to get done just for its own economy. And also if they even want to ever talk about separation, which I I know not a lot of Albertans are super keen on that right now, but who's to say what would happen down the line. So I think that's very promising. And obviously we have a close ally in Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe, you know, very like-minded, very conservative. He's a strong premier. And right. so we've seen him sort of join with Smith and say, they're going to have this coalition to maybe fight against some of the Trudeau government's energy policies. Unfortunately, I don't think that we have a very favorable audience in the Supreme Court of Canada right now. That's proven to be an issue time and time again. So we'll see what happens. It's tough to say. I think we might even see another carbon tax challenge from Premier Smith. I did have the opportunity to ask her about this during the recent election campaign. And she said, you know, we could look at a different issue, which is that Quebec is paying less in the federal carbon tax than the rest of Canada. And the tax should be even among all of Canada. So I think that there's a couple things up their sleeve. I think there is promising the fact that the Supreme Court of Canada seems so one-sided in favor of the federal government is troubling. But at the end of the day, all these initiatives, I think are very promising and they're moving us in the right direction. Right. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit to kind of a hot button issue, um, and that is uh, uh, the the whole LGBTQ plus situation that's going on. Um, and you wrote a piece about this. Uh, Calgary City Council amends a bylaw to restrict pro life uh, material. Uh, so th- this is in the context in Calgary of uh, you know City Council that has passed a bylaw making it essentially criminal for. Uh, people to go out and and protest within 100 meters of a drag queen story hour event. And we've had a Calgary pastor and a 17-year-old teenager who have been arrested and jailed for this. Uh, what are you seeing with what's going on with Calgary City Council? Have what seems to be a, an incredibly unpopular mayor, and and then we have what appears to be sort of a, a, a flip-flop on this uh, pro-life material bylaw. What are you seeing what's, with what's going on with uh, with Calgary City Council? It is really baffling to me that we have what seems to be perhaps the most woke city council in all of Canada here in Alberta. That, of course, being in Calgary, some of the things that they have passed, first of all, with this restriction so that those protesting drag queen story hours can't come within 100 meters of a building where that event is taking place. And now with their restriction on pro-life material, specifically this new amendment to an existing bylaw would give individuals who hand out images of aborted babies fines of $1,000 unless those images are first hidden within an opaque envelope. You also have to include your name and address on the images with one of the city councillors saying that they were too offensive for people to see and people just couldn't stomach stomach seeing those images. So it is just bizarre to me that we've ended up with such a radically progressive city council. I think Coming up, you know, I believe the election for city council is going to be in about two years. Conservatives really need to get themselves organized and figure out who their candidates are going to be in the race 
if they want to have a chance at shaking things up. But it's definitely a very progressive city council. They even tried to cancel the fireworks for Canada Day. Yes. I believe calling them like racist and saying that not all ethnicities would agree with them. And then they threw in a bunch of other reasons as to why they were being canceled. But, you know, there was so much outrage there that we did see them eventually overturn that decision. But of course, that decision should never have been made in the first place. Totally inappropriate to cancel Canada Day fireworks. Let us celebrate Canada Day. Stop trying to steal our national heritage from us. This is something we're seeing again and again on the left. They want us to have no pride in our identity or in our national heritage. And it's really shameful. So of course, it was a good thing that they removed that decision and reversed it. We are going to have the fireworks now. But it was ridiculous that it ever even had to be a conversation in the first place. So this is definitely somewhere conservatives need to focus their efforts over the next couple of years and ensure that we see a change in city council at the next municipal election. It, it was very encouraging, though, to see the way that that petition came together so quickly and that so many people were were prepared to get involved uh, in order to bring back that fireworks display. And it certainly shows some promise that the type of uh, conservative organization that could change the face of city council is possible. So that's that maybe a silver lining on that cloud. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I think it speaks to some of the smart conservative organizers that we do have within the city. I believe it was a group called Common Sense Calgary that put forward that initiative. And I know there's also a Common Sense Edmonton sister, and they do good work. So hopefully we can elevate their profile a little bit. Excellent. We're going to turn to our reading list now. And uh, these selections uh, are probably going to be familiar to you uh, because uh, they are True North uh, productions. Uh, one of them is is a great book that I read uh, recently called Losing True North, Justin Trudeau's Assault on Canadian Citizenship. And this is uh, uh, written by Candace Malcolm, who I know you know very well. I believe she's the founder of True North. The second book I have here, also written by Candace Malcolm, is called Generation Screwed. And I believe uh, she might be talking about your generation, Rachel, uh, or, or at least some members of it. Uh, here she says, in, in Canada, our government Funding requires robbing Peter to pay Paul, but what happens when Peter retires? So Generation Screwed is this is a manifesto that teaches young Canadians how to fight back against the Ponzi scheme set up by their government. Anyway, those are our selections, uh, Rachel. I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, let you have the last word. Are there any any books or or websites or things of that nature that you would recommend to people that would maybe enhance their understanding of some of the topics that you write about and that we've been talking about today? Sure. Since you mentioned a couple of True North books there, but also, of course, recommend my colleague Andrew Lawton's book on the Freedom Convoy. Yes, great you book. know, a great book. Uh, he did such an excellent job on just really summarizing what had happened. For anyone that hasn't already read it, you should definitely grab a copy. Andrew's such an excellent writer, and it's really interesting. One of the first books that I ever read when I moved to Alberta was King Ralph. Uh, I believe that's by uh, Don Martin, who is, I think, retired now, but he was a journalist. I worked with him up in Ottawa for a bit as well. And then the third and final book that I'm going to recommend is called Live Not by Lies. The subtitle is A Manual for Christian Dissidents. This is such a great book, and it basically makes the argument that the woke ideology that we're seeing so prevalent in our societies nowadays is really just a modern-day Marxism. And it gives you some really practical tools as to how you can fight back against that. So I would absolutely recommend that for everyone that I know. I think it'll really challenge you. And I think that it has the potential to change your life. So, yeah, thanks for those selections. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Wish you much continued success with your journalism and also with your podcast. So thanks very much for being our special guest today uh, on Grey Matter, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation.